If you would like to borrow a Bible this morning, raise your hand. Raise your hand high. The ushers will bring you a Bible. You can just stick it in the pew when you're done. We would like for you to, to follow along with us in the Bible. What we um, typically do is, is preach through books of the Bible. And just to be honest with you, that's, that's hard to do, okay? Just saying. You know, sometimes you just want to, just give me something I'm familiar with. But when you start preaching through books, you encounter things you're like, I've never even thought about that. And then you've got to try to understand it biblically and then communicate it somewhat. So if I look like I'm a mess sometimes, you know why. And sometimes if I'm not making much sense, bear with me. Eventually it will. Maybe. What we're going to talk about this morning, I don't think I've talked about much about this before, but we're going to talk about people moving from one country to another. And I'm, I'm going to use the words uh, migrant and immigrant. And I, and I understand that many of you are from all around the world. And depending upon your culture, those terms may have negative connotations. And, I, and I'm not trying to offend you and say the wrong words. I just don't know other words to say. But at the end, I'm going to offer a, a better word, hopefully, than, than, than both of those. And, and as I was getting my family ready for this sermon uh, last night during family worship, I, I, I try to get them to think about famous immigrants from the Bible. We like did this little trivia. I'm not going to do it with you, but if I asked you, can you name some famous immigrants from the Bible? If you could. And so that they, they were, one of them is Abraham. Remember, he left his country. Uh, Joseph, forced, forced immigrant. Uh, Moses, he, he left Egypt once, came back, and then left again for good. And the story we're talking about today, obviously, Ruth leaves her country and goes to another one. Now, as I was studying that this week, I, I came across an article that just came out. It's called uh, Mission Fields on the Move. And the idea is, is that there is this, glo- this massive global migration taking place and it presents unparalleled opportunities for ministry. I, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but um, uh, this uh, study done by uh, United Nations talking about migration being a major feature of the 21st century. And so this report claims that there are nearly 191 million uh, international migrants worldwide. And the International Organization for Migration estimates the number of foreign migrants at around 200 million. And when you think about migration or immigration, you think about beyond borders. But also about 100 million are on the move, even with their own borders. And of course, uh, uh, migration is extremely and enormously complex. And its causes and effects range from economic betterment to the horrors of war, uh, ethnic conflict, and genocide. And so whatever the, the causes, it is undeniable this is a great opportunity for the church to step up and engage people with the gospel. Now, we often talk about the Lord bringing the nations to America. We talk about that all the time. But many of you are from other countries, and what's happening in the nations are also flooding into your country also. So this is not just an American thing that's going on. It's, it's happening globally. Now, as people are rootless and they're in transition, maybe they've experienced some suffering, what's happening is they're becoming more open to the gospel. 
uh, there was a study done within uh, America on immigrants' receptivity to the gospel. On a five-point scale, they were interviewed among first-generation immigrants the, uh, of their openness to the gospel. And those from Ecuador, we just met uh, Ross and Mary, but those from Ecuador and Guatemala, their openness is, is 4.2, pretty high openness. Uh, those from Liberia, 4.1. Those from Japan, 2.3. Iraq and Iran, 2.2. I mean, people, as they, they're moving around to different countries, uh, are, are very open. And so this is a great opportunity for us to bring them the gospel. And what's been happening is we've been studying the Bible over the past few weeks. We've been studying the book of Ruth. And in Ruth, we see God moving people around and we see him moving Ruth around in order to bring salvation. Now, as we study Ruth, the end goal is not just the salvation of a Moabite woman named Ruth. The end goal is also the salvation of the nations. Because Ruth, I don't know if you thought about this, is an immigrant who ends up in the genealogy of the Messiah, Jesus. The Savior of the nations. That's pretty cool if you think about it. And as I was studying this, I thought, man, I just want to keep on with the love story. Because last week, we were really good. You were tracking with me. We're talking about love and relationships. You're on the edge of your seats. You're like, that's exciting. That's where I'm at. And then I'm like, but we're not going there this week. I'm sorry. Come back next week for more of that love. But one of the main themes of the book is God is incorporating a Moabite woman into the genealogy for the salvation of the nations. I think that's a big deal. And it's a big enough deal for us to stop, pause, think more deeply of what's going on behind this love story. And what's going on more deeply is that God is on a mission to bring salvation to the nations. God is on a mission to bring salvation to the nations. And this is not a truth you're unfamiliar with. Many of you are from the nations, and many of you have this idea of going to the nations with the gospel. But what I'm hoping through this morning is that God will reignite your heart for the nations. So let me give you context here, because I know some of you have not been with us. Ruth, you do not know what this book is about. It is about a love story, but it starts out very painful. We have a family of four. They're in Bethlehem. They're Israelites. Naomi, her husband Elimelech, and their two boys. A famine hits. They move to Moab, which is a foreign country. They worship the god of Chemosh. They go over to Moab. And while they are in Moab, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies. So it's Naomi left to their two boys. They marry Moabite women. Then after some time, her two boys die. She is left with her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. She says, get on back to Moab, have fun, hope everything goes well, get married, have kids. I'm going back to Bethlehem. There's food there. There's also a lot of suffering there, so go on back. Orpah says, that's a good idea. See you later. She goes back. Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. Clings to her mother-in-law. All that her mom can, mother-in-law can promise her is suffering. Come on back. Let's go suffer together. She goes back to Bethlehem. Ruth and Naomi. Mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, poor, no food, suffering. 
Ruth says, you know, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to go out and start to glean in the fields. Gleaning in the fields was where these poor and foreigners would follow behind the workers in the fields, and the workers would, would be the reapers. They would, they, would, they, would, they would cut the grain, and they would get it, and they'd bundle it together. But sometimes they would drop it, and they weren't supposed to pick it up. It was an Old Testament provision for the poor. And so poor people like Ruth could come along, and they could pick it up, and that would be their food. That would be their provision. That's what God provided. So Ruth goes out one day. She's just going through random fields, and she just so happens to end up in the field of Boaz. Boaz, by the way, is a relative of Naomi and Elimelech's family. God and his sovereignty brought these two crashing together for this beautiful love story. But something bigger is going on. Is God is intent on bringing salvation to the nations through this, this Moabite woman in the line of the Messiah. So as we pick up the story today, you may wonder where we're at. We're in the middle of Ruth chapter 2. And I really want you to understand that she is a foreigner. Peek with me in Ruth chapter 1 at verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, okay, as one. Ruth chapter 2 verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite, second time she's mentioned as a Moabite. Ruth chapter 2, verse 21. And Ruth the Moabite. Okay, okay, we get it, we get it. Uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 5. Then Boaz said the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite. Oh my, okay, here we go again. And then Ruth chapter 4, verse 10. Also Ruth the Moabite. Just call her Ruth. Just, just Ruth. But the, but the author's trying to do something here. He's setting you up. You need to understand this is Ruth the, the Moabite. She's not an Israelite. You're like, well, I wonder who the Moabites are. Well, that is a good question. They come from Moab. Do you know who Moab is? Remember that guy Lot? He had some issues. Yeah. Incest with his oldest daughter produced Moab, produced the Moabites. Great hostility with Israel, hatred, wars. Don't just think, oh, it's just we're with the Moabite. No. Hated people. Moabites, we hate them. It's Ruth the Moabite. And the author keeps bringing it up again and again and again. And he's trying to communicate something here. And what he's trying to communicate, as I was saying this week, many, many commentators saying this is what they're trying to communicate, is race is an issue. Ruth is an ethnic outsider. You get that. Race is an issue. Ruth is an ethnic outsider. She is not welcomed here. And yet, what does Boaz do? He keeps blessing this ethnic outsider. Let's pick it up. Ruth chapter 2, verse 14. And at mealtime, she's out working in the fields, time for lunch. Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers 
And he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Now, previous to this, he said, come here, come here, come here, Ruth. Don't go to anybody else's fields. You can glean here. We're going to load you up with a lot of stuff. If you get thirsty, you can go get something to drink. And now it's time for lunch. And he says, come on over here. Eat with us. I'm going to make you part of the Israelites. You can just hang out with us. You've put your faith in God. And, and, he, and he starts to serve her some lunch. Take note, men. He's serving her lunch. We'll get to that next week. I'm sorry to bring it up. But he's serving her. And so she's sitting with uh, the employees, and he's serving her, and so he fills her so much stuff. she got some left over, and, and this is amazing. Why is it amazing? Foreigner, Moabite, woman, gleaner, what? She's hanging with them, eating with them, being blessed by Boaz, and he's treating her as part of his own family. This past November, many of you participated in something we call Together for the Gospel. I like to talk about this story a lot. Maybe you've heard it before, but Together for the Gospel is where we worship with our Congolese brothers and sisters just down the road here from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And many of them have come to America. They've been pushed out of their country by war, by poverty and suffering. We saw that when we got to hang out with them. We got to hear some of the stories. And I'm not sure how they would express it, but the idea of ethnic outsider would be very real to them. Okay, so this is what we did. We went over to their church. Remember this? We went over to their church, and we packed their church out with EBFers. We packed them out. And we did a little sermon there, a little worship there. And we took up an offering. Remember, as they um, have girls that are, that are being trafficked or, or, or in prostitution in, in Congo, we took up an offering so they could buy them sewing machines so they could have a job. And we took up an offering to, um, to, to, to give the girls there an education through high school. And it was awesome. And we, it was a pretty big offering for them. And he called me and he was talking about, man, we are so blessed. We were so blessed. And I'm like, you know, typical American, just thinking about money. I'm thinking, yeah, wasn't that offering awesome? Wasn't that great? And the pastor's telling me, um, yeah, that, that was great, but there's something bigger going on than that. He said, we were just blessed by your presence with us in worship. And I'm like, well, okay. And, and he said, you know, what, he said, what our people feel is that we are unimportant in America. He said, we feel like we are lacking value. And he said, just by the fact that we showed up to their church to worship with them, showed that we cared for them, and it showed that they had value. It was amazing. But it's really sad. A brother and sister in Christ should never feel like they are an ethnic outsider. Don't you agree? In the body of Christ, they shouldn't feel that way. I mean, they can't help it because that's probably how they are treated. We're one in Christ. And Boaz, he's bringing Ruth in. He's bringing her in. Not treating her as an ethnic outsider. Letting her eat among his people. And then look at verse 15 and 16. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young man, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her 
and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and, and do not rebuke her. And this is great. Remember, the gleaners would have followed behind the reapers and they were to pick up the leftovers that was left. And he tells his employees, hey guys, let her sneak in among the standing grain. Let her snack some of that. And just let her get a lot. And when you're going along, just act like you're dropping some. Just drop some. Just drop. Oops, I dropped it. Let her get a lot. Load her up with all this stuff. But, but he, the wording here, and it says it several times in this book, he, he says, do not reproach her. Do not rebuke her. And the language is very strong here. And we'll see it from Naomi later that it's talking about abuse. And not just abuse by, it, it could be just telling the gleaners, quit taking more than your fair share, quit it. But it, it's crossing the line. And because it mentions Moab so much, it's crossing the line that these employees, these reapers, would have a tendency to verbally and physically abuse foreigners. Even though the law of God said have compassion on foreigners and aliens in your midst, that these workers and employees would abuse her because she was a foreigner. And Boaz, this is great, this is what he's doing. Boaz is inserting love in the midst of ethnic tension. He's inserting love in the midst of ethnic tension. Recently I've been watching a documentary that shows... I mean, it's just totally, it's just really reshaping my mind. I've been watching this documentary about the extreme abuses, uh, torture of those who are different. It's called Worse Than War. It was on PBS, and it, it, it's tracking the genocides of the last century. And by the way, the genocides of the last century killed far more people than all the wars put together. And what's so stunning about these about these, these genocides, these killings, is that it is done by normal, everyday people, people like Boaz's employees. Just normal people working their jobs. Yes, I understand there is an evil person at the top, Hitler, Pol Pot, Milosevic at the top. But it's carried out when one day a Rwandan Hutu wakes up and slays his best friend, who is a Tutsi. Any notion that human beings are inherently good, it totally goes out the window when you're standing over a mass grave. Oh, human beings are basically good. No. And so the author of the documentary says that people who are involved in genocide are intent on something. It's a word he created. He's just, he says, they're intent on eliminationism. They're intent on eliminationism. Their intent and the wickedness of their heart is when they are perceiving a threat, they are trying to eliminate an entire people group. And though eliminationism is an extreme form of ethnic hostilities, it starts with a seed of exclusivism 
that can breed in our hearts. Because when we are exclusive, we are building barriers around our lives and fences to keep those who are different from us on the outside. And if we're perceiving a threat from them, we'll lob some verbal things or some physical things to attack them. Now, as a Christian, we are called to have a certain amount of good barriers with regard to not loving the world The Israelites were supposed to come out from the Moabites because they are worshiping a God who sacrificed humans to the God. So there was supposed to be this separation from them, but it was not a separation that was not to show compassion and kindness to the alien or the foreigner that would come into their midst. It was not to be a separation based upon the the skin color or based upon these ethnic hostilities. And basically what I am saying, and I really want you to get this, because this is one of the most confusing things that our culture misunderstands about Christians. We preach an exclusive gospel. It's true. We totally believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. We believe that the other gods of other religions are not gods at all. They are false and they lead straight to hell. Straight up. Exclusive gospel. But our proclamation of the gospel is never exclusive. We spread it to everybody. And our love of the gospel is never exclusive. We don't want to say, you've got a different skin color, you're from a different religion, we're not going to love you, we're not going to give you the gospel. So though we preach an exclusive gospel, our love and proclamation of the gospel is not exclusive. And you know what's going on? Boaz gets that. He sees Ruth, he knows she's a Moabite, she, he knows that she's from a hated nation, but he also sees that Ruth is one who has associated herself with the God of Israel, and he says, you know what? God's intent is blessing the nations. God's grace was never to terminate on the Israelites. If his intent is to bless the nations, then as a true Israelite, I am going to bless the nations. And he inserts love in the midst of ethnic hostility. And then we come into the New Testament, and we see Peter. Remember Peter? He's thinking, I'm a Jew. Those are Gentiles. There has to be a separation. There has to be a barrier here. And the God reveals himself to it and says, Peter, do not show partiality. Peter, Boaz, in the same boat, and having a heart that's God's heart for the nations. And Boaz is encouraging his employees to do the same. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was an ephah of barley. Man, she, she collected so much grain. She's a pretty strong woman too. She's carrying this 30 pounds of grain around, which is a half month's salary in one day. Half month's salary, one day. Here, here you go. Bless this foreigner. Blesses her. And as I was reading this, I can't get 1 John 3.17 out of my head. I'm going to just quote it to you since we don't have a screen up here today. Uh, 1 John 3.17 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? So Boaz has the love of God in him as he sees his sister in need and he has material possessions. And he shares it, and he cares for her, because he is a true Israelite with the love of God that's in him. Verse 18, 
And she took it up and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So Ruth comes home. She's loaded up. And Naomi's probably been starving all day. And, and Ruth brings home some extra lunch for her. And her mother-in-law is just blown away. Look what she says in verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So the girls, they just want to talk about, like, what, what happened today? Tell me all the details. Where'd you glean? Where'd you work? And, and, and what's interesting, Naomi is blessing the man whoever blessed Ruth. She doesn't know. And there's this tension building in the story that you know about, but the characters don't know about. Remember, Boaz is a relative of Elimelech, the dead husband of Naomi. He has a responsibility and some authority to fix Naomi's situation. We'll get there in a moment. Ruth knows that Boaz is the one who blessed her today, but she doesn't know all the details of how Boaz can rescue her situation. And Naomi is totally ignorant. All she knows is that some man blessed Ruth today, which in turn blesses her. And whoever wrote this book knows that also. And to create this literary tension, they wait till the last word of the verse to tell you who it is. Feel the tension building. So look at verse 19 as Ruth is about to tell her. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, here we go, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Oh, that changes everything. That changes everything. And Naomi gets it. Look what she says at verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. <laughs> so here we go. Naomi's like, Oh, yeah, Boaz. Oh, Maybe she was like, I forgot about him. When I was whining in chapter 1, I must have totally forgot about Boaz. He's, he's blessing us. He's blessing the living. He's blessing the dead. He's blessing, he's blessing everybody. And then, then, then she says, oh, yeah, by the way, he's one of our redeemers. And you're like, that means nothing to you. And when you read that, you're like, what does that mean? He's one of our redeemers? So what? Well, this is a big deal. Family law. For those of you who are into law, family law within Israel has put a certain obligation upon family members to take care of other family members who have come upon hard times. So the technical term used here of this male relative responsible for stepping up is called a kinsman redeemer. We're going to really hit this next week, but since it came up, we're going to talk about it. A kinsman redeemer. And this idea of being a redeemer is, is rooted in the very character of God who redeemed his people out of Egypt, and he is now their redeemer, and he is leading them around. So in imitation of God, this kinsman redeemer is a man who would step up, and he would have certain responsibilities and obligations to 
care for relatives in need. And part of the, the reason why we have this is we're trying to keep this tribal unity and clans intact. All right, so here's what a kins and redeemer would do. All you males in here, get ready. Here's some responsibilities back in the Old Testament if you were living under this old T law here. This is some of your responsibilities. Number one, if a poor family member got into such bad times they had to sell their property, if you're the relative, the kins and redeemer, you would come along and buy the property back to keep it in the family. It'd be very shameful to lose your property because that's supposed to stay in the line of your family, your clan, forever. So the redeemer would buy it back. Let's just say a relative had such hard times, they just sold themselves as a slave. The redeemer would have a responsibility to step up and buy them back, redeem them as a slave. Another responsibility that if someone within his family was murdered, the redeemer was to go after the killer and make sure justice was taken care of. But there's, there's one other aspect that a redeemer could do, and this is where the story gets really cool. The situation in Ruth shows that a kinsman redeemer would also step in if a relative died to make provision. Let me explain the happiness of Naomi. Because the kinsman redeemer would step in and he would have the rights to keep the unity of the clan by marrying Ruth and providing an heir so that the male relative who died could have children. Now, you, when you look and consider Boaz, you think, uh, he's got to do it. It's a forced obligation. No, 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 because he's not a brother. If he was the brother of Elimelech, it would be more of a forced obligation. But since he is a distant relative within the same clan, he's not forced to do it. It's part of a right. It's part of a, uh, a freedom to redeem Ruth and carry on this line. But he doesn't have to do it. And what we're going to see... In the next two chapters, there's some complications. There's actually a redeemer closer, relative-wise, to Naomi and Lemon, like Ben Boaz. We'll get to that in a second. But what I like about this whole thing, and what I think it is so cool, is that this is a picture, Boaz's redemption of Ruth, by the way, he will redeem her. It's a picture of the re- greater redemption of one who will descend from from, from Boaz, and that will be Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ redeemed us from sin, which kept us separated from, from God. So Jesus is our redeemer who came through the line of Boaz. As Boaz redeems Ruth, a person from another nation, so Jesus will come as a descendant of Ruth and Boaz to redeem the nations. Oh, come on now. That is cool. I'm going to say it again. I said it too confusing. All right, so here we go. Boaz redeems Ruth from another nation. They're going to get married, have descendants. Jesus will be a descendant of Ruth and Boaz, and he will redeem the nations. God is showing us something in the Old Testament, and that is God cares for the nations. Don't think we just come to the New Testament like, whoa, where did this come from? God all of a sudden cares for the nations. Not the case. He's been caring for the nations throughout the whole time. It's where his heart's at for the nations, to see them redeemed. Let's finish up the story today, verse 21. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, 
lest in another field you be assaulted. Remember I told you, assaulted, foreigner, assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, the chapter ends in a very boring way. It basically says, Ruth finished up her duties in the fields of Boaz until the end of the harvest. Then she lived with her mother-in-law. That sounds really exciting, right? Nice love story. Where's the man? Not stepping up, right? It's over. She's back with her, her mother-in-law. And, you're, and, you're, and you're, you're left to wonder, does Boaz's kindness only go so far? Is, is, is that it? It's one thing to show kindness to a foreigner. It's another thing to make her your wife. I was thinking about people who go all around the world and they, and they work in, in orphanages. And there comes a, a point in many of the people who work in orphanages, it comes a point in their life where, where they think, you know, maybe I should consider adopting one of these children and making them a part of my family. Because it's one thing to say, this is the orphan boy that I care for. And you've got to admit, it's something totally different to say, this is my son. And so for, for Boaz to say, yeah, this is the Moabites who I, I cared for in the fields. I, I loaded her up. She got a lot of grain. I took care of her. Or to say, this is Ruth, the Moabite who is my wife. Ho, ho. What's going to happen? Well, you can always read ahead that come back. Let's see if this thing gets worked out. The key thing to see this morning is that God is on a mission to bring salvation to the nations. And I think it's probably the, one of the main themes in the whole book is that he is crossing these ethnic and racial barriers and he's bringing in a foreigner in the line of Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, he is going to bring salvation to the nations. And we got a hint of God's heart here, even in the Old Testament. And if we can project all the way into the future when we're with Jesus, we can say like Revelation 5, 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you understand? Around the throne with Jesus, we're going to be with the nations. That's awesome. But as we live on this earth, what do we do about that? What do we do with the nations coming here? What do we do about the nations being a part of other countries, about the nations constantly having this, this migration? And I mean, if you were going to move to other nations, and what, what, do, we, what do we do? How should we, how should we think about that? I'm only going to give you three things, and then I am going to be done, so you've got to listen to this. The first thing is we've got to keep the nations in front of us. When I bring people up here like Ross and Mary Hunter, like we just did from Ecuador, it's not because we just think, oh, that's a good idea. They're nice people. We're trying to keep the nations in front of you. And if you go out there today and say, Ross, Mary, what's going on? What's going on in Ecuador? Come on, tell us. And when you take money and you say, okay, we're going to give you money to go and reach that people group. It's a crazy thing that happens. It's one thing to tell a missionary, I'm going to pray for you. It's quite another to say, I'm going to pray for you and give you money. There's something about when you give, you, give your money away that your heart kind of follows it. You give money, oh, there goes my heart. And you think more about where your money's going and who it's supporting and who you're reaching. We need to keep the nations in front of us. One of the ways that we do that 
as we constantly think about how we're going to reach the nations, and as we send people out, we kind of go with them. Our money and our prayers go with them, and they stay in our hearts. And you say, okay, okay, that's the nations. We can go to the nations. But what about the nations who have come to Chicago? What about all the nations in our country? Um, and you may be thinking, maybe we, should, maybe we should start some type of immigrant ministry for the nations coming here. And I just want to say, come on, before immigrant ministries, we have to have relationships with immigrants. Because it always happens sometimes in sermons, someone gets excited, they come up and say, oh, Pastor Jason, you, Pastor Jason, have to start an immigrant ministry right now for our church. Because I'm so excited about it, you start it. And then I'll, and I'll ask them, okay, tell me all the friends you have right now that are from the nations. Nobody. Before we have ministries and programs to the nations and for immigrants coming in, we have to build personal relationships with immigrants, people from other nations coming here. You know that we have a relationship with the Congolese church. The pastor over there is Kaviti Kakama. And you know we've done these big events with them, but I just want to say... Before we had any of that happen, Kavidi and I would go to Panera and eat. We would hang out and eat. He's my friend. I'm his friend. We know each other. We hang out. Before we did anything, we just were building this relationship. Who are you? He's like, who are you? We're getting to know each other. And then along the way, we said, okay, let's do stuff together. And so if you want to know kind of what our immigrant program is, it's very unorganized. It's like me and Kaviti talking on the phone. Hey, Pastor Jason, we had a family just move here, displaced by the war. They have nothing. And then I'll talk to some of you. You you got a dresser. You got some clothes. You got some food. Let's get them hooked up. And then he's like, Pastor Jason, we have immigrants from Congo in Chicago, and we're trying to get them to come to church, but they don't have a car, and they live everywhere. We need a van. And so I told you guys about five years ago, we need a van for Kaviti. And you guys took up money, and now right now, as we're having this service, Kaviti and his, his people in his church are taking that van, and they're driving it all around Chicago, picking up immigrants. Some of them had just got here. They'll know anybody. And, and they're bringing them to worship Jesus. And what Kaviti is noticing is that people, when they get here with nothing, are very open to the gospel. It's an opportunity for the church to step up and bring the gospel to those who are just coming here. And the last thing I want to say to you is, come on, don't be threatened by the nations. I know a lot of you are not from Chicago, and wherever you're from, even from other nations, chances are, wherever you're from, people look like you, right? They, they do some of the things you do. It's, it's your culture. It's very similar. And you came here to Chicago, and you're like, what in the world is this? And you feel threatened by different races, maybe threatened by the nationalities, and you're ready just to finish your job. You're ready to finish schooling and get back to wherever you came from, to where people are look more like you and they look like you and and I just kind of wonder have you ever thought that maybe God brought you to Chicago to give you a heart for the nations you ever thought about that 
Like he said, you know what? I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you in Chicago and I'm going to give you a heart to the nations while you're there. In the coming months, we're going to introduce something to you. Over this last year, our church has been on pause. We didn't start anything new. We didn't try anything new. We didn't do much anything new at all. And some of you may wonder, where are we going? In the coming weeks and months, we're going to unveil where we are going. And it all starts with something we call the heart of our church, the ethos of our church, which we're going to express in five simple ethos statements. And one of those statements has to do with a heart for the nations. And so instead of using the word immigrant or migrant, let me suggest uh, another word to you, one that we're going to use from the Bible, and that's the word sojourner. One who is moving around on this earth but has citizenship elsewhere. And if you're a believer, do you know your citizenship is in heaven? And while you're here, you're sojourning on earth, and a lot of you are sojourning from country to country to country all over the place, but your citizenship is not in here. It's not in this country. It's ultimately in heaven. And the phrase we're putting together is called invested sojourner. That while you are here in Evanston, we want you to be an invested sojourner. Because most of you are not going to land here, and ultimately all of you are going to die and end up in heaven if you have faith in Jesus, right? And so while you're here, wherever you're at on this earth, and while you're in Evanston, we want you to invest here as a sojourner. And as people pass through, invest in them. As you pass through, invest in others. And while you're here, it is time for you to have a heart for the nations. And if you don't have one, it's time to get one. And if you don't know anybody else from another country... It's time to meet them. It's time to branch out and operate as an invested sojourner. And what we're hoping is that God's heart for the nations will become your heart for the nations because he wants to see them all redeemed in Jesus to bow before him all together and worship. Let's pray. Lord, we are people who are passing through. Some have just moved here. Some are moving away in the next month. And Lord, I just ask you to put us in a heart that wherever we're at, whether we stay, whether we go, that we would invest. We would invest in those who are around us. We would invest in the nations. And as we move around, may we invest Jesus, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven and we await a Savior from there. And until then, we want to proclaim his name to the nations, whether it's in Ecuador, whether it's in parts of Africa or Asia or America, wherever, Lord, we want to proclaim the gospel. Make us more invested. Make us more intentional. And give us your heart for those you care for all around the world so that we will gather with them and bow before you and worship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.